and welcome to the Research Works podcast, brought to you in association with Curtin University and the Healthy Strides Foundation. Your hosts are Dr. Dana Poole and Dr. Ashley Thornton, and together we will interview world-leading researchers in the area of child health to support your practice in being more evidence-based. The team at the Research Works podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land and waters on which we live and work. We pay our respects to all First Nations peoples, elders past and present, and would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast each week, the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. We recognise their continued connection to this beautiful budja we call home. Well, hello, everyone. I'm so, so glad that you've decided to join us for another episode of the Research Works podcast. Yes, and today's episode <laughs> is a pretty special one. We have not just one, but two guests with us today. We have a returning visitor in Ginny Palek. And welcome back, Ginny. Welcome, Ginny. <laughs> <laughs> and we also are very privileged to have Dr. Diane Damiano joining us as well. We're so excited to have you on the show today, Diane. Welcome. Hi, everyone. <laughs> I would have to say this is an absolute thrill for me. As you can probably see in my face, I'm so excited because today we have two people who have greatly influenced my career. They've been people who've gone before us mm-hmm. and, um, I, you know, I wouldn't be here without them. And I think that's why it's so brilliant that we can share all this and, and have these discussions together. And, and today we'll be talking about an overall topic about how can we promote evidence-based practice in the field of physiotherapy or, as the Americans like to say, physical therapy. <laughs> so we'll be drawing on the latest research in the era of cerebral palsy. So this is going to be a cracker. I can't wait. It's going to be such a good conversation. But of course, before we get started, we need to tell everyone uh, a little bit more about our guests today. Dr. Diane Damiano is the Clinical Centre's Chief of the Neurorehabilitation and Biomechanics Section within the Rehabilitation Medicine Department at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. A physical therapist by training, Dr. Damiano holds a PhD in research methods and biomechanics from the University of Virginia, a Master of Science in Physical Therapy from Duke University, and an undergraduate degree in Biological Sciences from Catholic University. Dr. Damiano's area of expertise is in the investigation of both existing and novel rehabilitation approaches in children with cerebral palsy. And Ginny Palag is a physiotherapist and earned her master's in PT at Emory University in Georgia and a doctorate in PT from the University of Maryland. She started a career at NIH and has worked for her local school system early intervention program for the past 18 years. Ginny has published content focused on power mobility, standing, supported stepping, hip health and hypotonia. Whew, it's a good wow, one. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> you two have been incredibly busy. <laughs> What a career. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's the in that well, that's the formal getting to know you both. But we, of course, on Research Works like to have an informal getting to know you as well. So our icebreaker question for today is what is one thing you wished you knew at the start of your career that you know now? It's Gene, a tough one. It's a big go one. First. Who's going first? <laughs> Jenny? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Looking. Diane, who's gonna go for it? This is a this is a deep thinking one. <laughs> Jenny's always a tough act to follow, but I'll let her go first. <laughs> All right, then. Um, I think at the beginning, I thought there was only one way. 
And I thought that I always had to be right. And I always had to sort of be upfront. Um, I'm a New Yorker. Um, I rode the subway uh, three hours each way to high school every day. So I'm sort of used to getting in the crowd and having my way. And I had wise people like Dr. Damiano guide me. I was really lucky that way to be like, no, you're good at this one thing. And I think from very early on, from my very first publication that Diane helped me get, and my first presentation at AACPDM that she coached me through, it was like, no, I think I didn't have the vocabulary then that I have now, but it's just the fours and the fives. And I'm just going to be about participation um, and engagement and assistive technology. And I'm just going to take this very narrow path and that's what it's going to be. So I'm just so appreciative to all the people that have helped me along the way and my amazing research partners and mentors. And it's been a great ride. Wow. That is Love cool. That, that yeah. is actually really hard to follow, Ginny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Diane, what about you? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's always a lot of content things I wish I had known, but mm. I, I think, and I think this is still something I worry about is I wish I had learned somewhere to be, to learn how to be more convincing. And I, you know, I, I certainly am very convinced myself about things, yeah. but I have a really hard time convincing others. And I, um, and I find that frustrating. I think it's part of it's because I'm quite emotional about when I talk about kids and Uh I, I feel like you don't, you shouldn't mess with kids. And so I get really, I really try to stand up for them. And Mm. yeah, so I think that that's, but everything's a journey. Right. And um, I certainly couldn't have imagined I was a, young mother with three young children married to a cardiac surgeon when I got my PhD. And I was just doing it because I really was interested in research. And then all of a sudden, like I'm traveling the world and meeting people like Ginny and just having like such an amazing life that I would never have predicted, but it's, and it's been fantastic. That is great. Oh gosh. I love that. I don't feel like I can follow any of that. (laughs) (laughs) I think for me, and it probably ties in a bit to what you were saying, Ginny, is that I wish I knew at the start that I don't have to do everything right now, Mm. that, you know, it's really important to Mm -hmm. do a really good job of one thing rather than trying to spread yourself across lots of different things and you end up doing not a very good job of all of those things. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that would have, that. that would have been good, but Hey, hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, I love that we can, you know, when you think about, I look at the therapists that are out now with the knowledge that we currently have and we're, we're, we're trying to teach them where it's at now. And they're just, when I look at where they are, they're far more advanced than where I was when I started. And I kind of go, well, that's the point. Mm. It's, it's to kind of continuously build on each other. And, Mm -hmm. and for me, when I first came to the area, I was like, oh, should I go into the hospital system first? That feels like that's what I should do. I should be more generalist. And I felt so guilty for going straight into pediatrics. I'm like, oh, am I going to be you know, pigeonholed in that space? Is that going to be okay? And I'm so glad I did that because it was, you know, people sometimes just need to spend time in that area to develop it and grow and understand the field. And, and what that would mean is, you know, now, 20 years later, you've had 20 years of industry experience and you mm. kind of get what the pulse is and, and you can speak into it more. And, um, but I wish I knew not to put myself under so much pressure back then because mm. back then I was like, oh, <laughs> should I get out of community? Should I go straight back to the hospital? And yeah. I felt really bad about it. Yeah. <laughs> but 
it's okay. That's it's funny, really yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. You made the right decision. <laughs> Pediatrics is the best. It yeah. absolutely is. I would not change it at no. all. At <laughs> all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the same thing, like you said, you know, you, you, um, being in the area now, it's an amazing community and you get to mm. meet incredible people. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a great industry. So yeah. Big advocate for it. Yeah. Yeah. Should we get into it? I think so. That was good. Okay. (laughs) Well, let's start off really broadly and let's talk about what evidence-based practice is Mm. first. Should we start there? Like how how can we define what evidence-based practice is? So, you know, the question is, you know, we really just want to use the best science out there Mm -hmm. that related to the child's um, strengths and be able to use that to make decisions about their care. And it's, you know, I love the SACIT definition because it talks about individual patients. You're looking at this individual and you're trying to make their best, the best decision for them. Um, the issue with evidence, though, is that we, evidence isn't generated in a, in a logical way. It's just people focus on something that's interesting to them and they produce evidence on it. Yeah. We probably need a better way to produce evidence. So there's lots of holes in our evidence, right? Mm, yeah. And that's where I think it gets into the idea of evidence informed that we can make we can make some judgments and some guidelines, but we're not gonna we don't have the whole picture and all the data that we need. Mm-hmm. So we have to use different things, clinical judgment, previous experiences and things like that to fill in those gaps. Mm. And evidence isn't necessarily you know it's not generated in a vacuum is it it's um and the application of that evidence isn't doesn't happen in a vacuum either so there's lots of other contextual factors that are influencing what you do absolutely right yeah so and i think it's really hard right now because there's not a general way that people get trained in that so like dana you mentioned that you went right into pediatrics so yeah. when you did that did you feel well versed in dystonia and spasticity and spinal muscular atrophy did you get in there ready to go no not at all you know we weren't trained at all and at least in america i'm old the only thing you could do was go take an eight-week bow bath course otherwise you didn't even know where to start right so Mm -hmm. even from the beginning basics in america at least we get certified, we get trained, we get a very generalized education. But yeah. when we want to go learn about something, yeah. we really have to seek it out on our own. Yeah. Mm. It's so influenced, you know, when you think about the first few years of being in the industry, it's influenced by who you meet mm-hmm. and who will mentor you. And if you don't come across that person who can guide you in that direction, you know, you can you can be steered in a very different direction. And it, it takes a while to then come back be- but I just think back then, I wish I could go back and treat those kids back then with what I know now. Like it's, I'm just so much better now. I've got mm. more of an informed uh, view, but, you know, accessing actual evidence, whatever that was at the time, I, I couldn't get a hold of that. So it was really, really challenging. Mm. Mm. Right. I worked and with we Suzanne talk about- Campbell uh, and because well, I was at the University of North Carolina and Suzanne Campbell was the the person on the faculty of my first job and I took all of her courses like you know if you all know Suzanne Campbell I hope she's mm. just a brilliant woman but she was a PT who was also a neuroscientist and I was just so excited to to work with her but I, then I assumed though that all pediatric PTs were like her and yeah. I was so shocked 
you know, because that was my view. This is yeah. my first person. And yeah. she taught me how to do Brazeltons, Baileys. I mean, she just taught me sort wow. of everything I knew yeah. on a higher level. And I just, but then I found out that everybody wasn't like her. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of earth shattering. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, it's funny because I was having a conversation with, um, a friend the other day who's a physiotherapist and, you know, her journey was very different to yours, Dana. She didn't go into pediatrics, but she ended up where she where she ended up as a, a grad physio. Uh, there wasn't a lot of support. There were no, you know, senior mentors. And she was really kind of thrown in the deep end. And I imagine for people who have that experience, finding the evidence and applying the evidence mm. is really tricky. So can we like just talk about practically what that looks like? Like how how do you seek out and implement evidence? Oh, good one. At the beginning of my career, it was a lot of hit and miss. Like I remember when I was doing a column for Exceptional Parent Magazine and everybody was so excited about hyperbaric oxygen and there was no evidence. So I did a case study. Um, Bill Oppenheim put it on the website of AACPDM and then I thought it was quite promising. And then the RCT came and it wasn't promising. So I moved on. Yeah. And then I met Karen Pape and nighttime electrical stims seemed so promising. And I was all in. I taught for her. I tried it, but then it didn't pan out. So I moved on. My doctoral dissertation, I included whole body vibration because, oh, my gosh, I went to Germany. I met with Oliver Semler. I met with Rainier Blank. I was like, oh, this stuff is really cool. Yeah. But then it didn't pan out. So you know, I moved on. So I think that's so important about where you get your information and what you do when something that you thought was really cool doesn't pan out. Gosh, I love that perspective. Yeah, I was probably a little bit older than Ginny. So when I was, when I was first starting as a therapist, there was no evidence. And I would go, for example, I was working with kids with cystic fibrosis and I wanted to do like an aerobic training with them because I thought they need to do something to keep their lung keep the lung capacity they have. And the orthopedic surgeon would said that we were seeing them said, well, you can do it, but you have to show me the evidence first. And so it was like question like question kept coming up like that. And yeah. I'm like, I'd go to the literature and thinking, okay. And then I would like, there is no evidence. <laughs> and I got so frustrated. And so yeah. um, that's kind of what led me to do my PhD. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it sounds like it's that curiosity is what mm. drives it. Um, but I love how you've both described, you know, if you find something that didn't really work, you weren't attached to it personally. Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, well, let's, let's find the next part. And that was part of that process. So I guess from that, you know, what are some of the dangers or what are some of the risks if we don't want or we don't apply, you know, evidence-based practice into what it is that we do? You know, what are some of those things that we can, we risk if we don't do that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest risk is that patients don't get the best care. I mean, that's this is why we all do what we do is to make sure that children have the best lives they can. Mm. And if we don't use evidence and we're and then people think, well, you know, I'm not doing anything that hurts them. But you are doing something if, you know, if you're doing something that's not helpful, you're wasting time, resources, time that could be spent either playing mm-hmm. or doing something much more useful. So, yeah. I mean, I think the end of the day where is, is that really it's, we have to think of that patient and that family. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, I, I always give the cancer example that, you know, if someone has cancer, they go to the doctor and they want to do the latest, best thing. And rehab tends to have a sort of a slower time course and mm-hmm. doesn't feel that urgency. But I feel that urgency. I feel like, when I have this little child and I know their muscles are developing and their brains are developing, 
I want to get in there and do something as the, the best we can as soon as possible. I feel a lot of urgency because I know that affects their whole lives. And so I just, I guess I'm surprised that people are more interested. I don't, you know, and it's not an affair. One way that they're more interested in sort of their journey and their beliefs and not really thinking, you know, this is, we're a medical profession. We are supposed to do, we're supposed to use the best science. That's, that's our job. Mm. Yeah. Gosh, that was well said. Yeah. 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 It, It becomes like a, yeah, they connect themselves to the the things that they're doing and it almost becomes part of their identity and it's hard to tease that apart isn't it right absolutely yeah i think so and they've they've invested a lot of training they've invested money they've invested a lot of time um i mean and i I mean i think a lot of it's well-meaning but i think you have to step out and you know especially when you're getting pressure from the outside saying maybe what you're doing isn't supported by evidence. Yeah. I mean, before when we didn't have evidence, we were all, we could do whatever we wanted because there was nobody really to say that yeah. doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. But now when you say, we don't think that works or we think we have these other 10 things that work better, you have to be willing to, to re-examine and, and open yourself up to that. Yeah. So let's talk And we've about- heard a story from Sweden where they're not funding certain things that are in the red, you know, below the worth it line. Yeah. So if wow. you write in your note that that's yeah. what you did, you won't get funded. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, we thought real, that was kind of cool. That is cool. Yeah. A real line in the amazing. sand. Yeah. 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 Well, let's talk about the current body of evidence when, um, you know, in physio or physical therapy, we know that it it's growing so much and it changes all the time and it's constantly evolving, which is so exciting, but keeping up, that means keeping up can be a bit of a challenge. So, what do we know now about uh, about evidence for for physical therapy? Yeah, I mean, I, it is hard to keep up. I but I think um, again, that's that's our job to keep up. Mm-hmm. To at least know, at least for the, you know, we all have sort of our, our practices, or you know, we have certain things that we're doing in our practice or focusing on, like cerebral palsy. And what the literature's gotten actually quite easy to read because there's a lot of systematic reviews now. There's guideline development. So you don't really, a lot of people are doing the work for you. I think like the work that you guys are doing to to actually get the evidence out in a, a really much easier way that people like to learn with is a really wonderful idea. I feel like that's kind of the missing piece that we've kind of expected through osmosis. People figure out what the evidence is mm-hmm. or they... But they don't. I mean, you you have to sort of engage them and interest them and yep. talk about hot topics and and make it make it more appealing to learn for sure. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I've noticed about you know some of the and I know we're going to talk about them in a bit more detail in a moment, but some of the new guidelines that have come out, you know, those clinical guidelines and those systematic reviews. I think um, you know credit to the teams that have put those together because they really do a, a great job of making that information easy to access and easy to understand for people who maybe don't have that research background, but it's all kind of laid out for you really clearly there to, to pick yeah. it up and run with it. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot I of just want to mention that it's not, <laughs> and it's not just systematic reviews because a no. classic systematic review is RCTs. So I think this, there's been methodology, methodology creep mm-hmm. in that the scoping review for me is the to go through to yep. go to thing. Yep. I'm publishing much more scoping reviews because yeah, I can look that. at all yeah. the lower <laughs> level evidence, which is all that's there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what I have been really noticing and what you just said there really 
oh, just really resonated with me because, yes, there is – when you look at literature, there's a huge amount of literature. But when you are specialising in a particular area, and, you, you know, this is my area. So like you said, it's, it's mainly cerebral palsy. It's motor development. I'm a physiotherapist. I want to improve motor skills. Um, actually, that area of evidence has come in, like from this big funnel. It's come right down now. And you can mm. actually go, this is where I'm at. So if you are searching for more information – it's based on that lot of information. We're no longer looking at, you know, hundreds of articles being published. We're now just coming down and there is this ability to sort of be more selective and you can do now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. But you also miss things. Like, I think it took me a year until I found your amazing article on overground versus treadmill training, (laughs) which was something I believed in and it already did, but I was waiting. There was one small article by Willoughby, but when Uh yours came out, then, then, then I was all set. And I remember a story in San Antonio, Texas. I was sitting next to Diane at the APTA conference and a woman got up to do her presentation. And she said, I have earth shattering news for you. I am the first person ever to find out that exercise does not increase spasticity. And I look at Diane and I'm like, really, you're going to let that go? (laughs) So much more than that. Like you've actually shown it. It does so much more. And she's like, you know, you got to yep. start somewhere. Yeah. So again, she's kinder than I am, but yeah. <laughs> that's the thing. I want infographics. I want a, a go-to website. Yeah. I want yep. certification and evidence-informed practice for yep. porticollis, for CP, for SMA. Like, mm. how do you know somebody knows mm. what they're doing? And mm. how, where do you go when you're motivated, when you're curious, when you want to be good at what you're doing? Yeah. Where do I go for that information? Yep. Yep. Except mm-hmm. for your podcast, of course, which is my go-to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Ginny has said, this is Ginny's suggestion that we should have, I mean, I think the APTA or American Physical Therapy Association should have courses in evidence-based practice and get certified. Like we did have like a pediatric specialty and stuff like that. But I think really, because people, therapists really want to know yeah. the de- the big details, yeah. right? They really want to know this patient in front of them, what are some of the things that I can really do that I, that you can visualize right yeah. away? Yeah. And I think that there's so many other certifications that, that people hang their hats on, but we don't have the competition. Science doesn't compete in the same way as these other things do. No. We, we, we're too like, oh, this might work. This has a small effect. You know, you uh-huh. might get yeah. a modest change. Yeah. I mean, we're just too, we're too careful and not, and not really getting the real message out there. Yeah. And I, th- I yeah. think the real, what I finally decided is the real message. It sounds terrible, but it's like, the real message is that if you really work hard and you really exert yourself and you do things in this in a certain way in the in a science-based way or you know according to biomechanics or exercise physiology principles whatever you're trying to change that you can make small incremental progress and it's going to take years it's mm-hmm. going to take your whole it's going to take a lot and that that message sounds like it's like parents or maybe people don't want to hear that, but it's like, if you want to be an Olympic athlete, you're going to start here and you're going to train and train and train and train and train. And, and, and you've got to train in the right ways. You're not going to get better. Yep. And, but it's going to be your hard work. And I think we don't like to give that message. We want to do something that that's more of a quick fix or an instant, or, you know, let's put oxygen in the brain or let's, let's zap muscles or it's, you know, it, it can't be that easy. You know, nothing's that easy. Yeah, so yeah. I think we've kind of mislead people a little bit. Mm, 
Yeah. I think what you said is so it's it's so true because we are as researchers, we are so used to saying things like, you know, it's a small effect, you know, we, we need further studies in this area, you know. Yeah, we don't want to overstate things. <laughs> we so, don't, we don't. Know, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And then we notice that if if someone is maybe selling another kind of intervention that we don't know about, um, they're not grounded by science, they're they don't they feel okay to say like there's amazing results. Yeah. <laughs> there's great things you can see. So if you were to come to it uninformed because it's your first time coming to the area and you hear us say, Ooh, small effect, you know, more studies are needed versus amazing effect. Let's see what we can do. We're comparing two different things. Yeah. The marketing department for research has a lot to answer for. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it does. And I, I read something recently. They said they rewrite your genetic code. I'm like, this is a therapy out there i'm just like what yeah like how can you even say that with absolutely no evidence but it's just i mean of course you will you want to believe these things yeah, we yeah, all yeah. want to change yeah. the brain and do stuff yeah. you know and yeah. as a parent you can see they're so vulnerable yeah mm-hmm. yeah so, and it's hard it's hard to see these things you see an intervention that says we're strengthening yeah. and then diane's like yeah but they're doing it at the end range and not in the middle so that's not really effective and you're mm-hmm. like oh wow I, yeah. I i didn't realize that yeah yeah so yeah. you know there, you just got to dial down to these little things there's a test that um an assessment that i used to use and i always used to say it's valid and reliable but then in publishing a study recently we dug into it and the validity and the reliability resorted the items and like took some out and, and did some stuff. So the way people use it, it's actually not valid and reliable. You know, that took me 20 years to figure <laughs> out. So we're not all, we don't all come to this easily. Yeah. We're all struggling. We're yep. all learning and growing and trying yep. to be the best version of ourselves that yep. we can be and yep. do yeah. the best job we yep. can for families. And yeah. the best intervention is still just get out of the house, just go to the playground or get mm, in the community. Yeah, and that's right. Yeah. Go yeah. get engaged and participate and mm. go have fun because that's yeah. what kids are supposed to do. That's so right. get out of the clinic. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's my day. Exactly. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> So I guess this takes us to, I guess, knowledge translations. I'm mm. going to go back to um, an article that you published, Diane, back in 2006. And I remember I found it maybe three or four years after that uh, was public, published um, and it was called Activity, 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 Rethinking Our Physical Therapy Approach to Cerebral Palsy. And for me, that was transformative. And I looked at the date and I look at where we are now. And it's been about 17 years, which incidentally is what is often published as the knowledge translation, that gap from yeah. you know research to, to practice. So <laughs> I'm kind of a little bit gobsmacked because when I reread that paper, even just early this morning, I'm like, they're still so relevant right now. And they're the topics of conversation now. But I'm just really interested in, in, in why you wrote that article. Like what was the, it's a beautiful article. And mm. for those who haven't read it, we'll put links for that. So you can definitely go and have sure. a look at it. But tell us a little bit about how that article came to be. Yeah, so I went, uh, the APTA has these conferences called STEP conferences, and the first one was New Step, and I went to Two Step, which was in 2005, and was one of the the speakers for the pediatric section, and everybody was talking there, this is, everybody's talking about intensive therapies now, we're realizing Mm -hmm. we had to, we were under rehabbing people, but then I realized in pediatrics, this is, we were talking about intensive stuff there too, and studies by Eva Bauer and other people would show that intensive therapy wasn't any better than less intensive. And then I started to realize, which I heard Jenny say recently is that, you know, zero times a hundred is still zero. And if you do zero times 30, you know, 20 is still zero. And I realized that a lot of things we did in pediatrics were really still like rotating kids with balls and doing very, very manipulative, very passive things. And I'm thinking, 
they just can't do practice, practice, practice. We need to make sure we're doing practice in the right things. And so my strength stuff sort of felt led into that. And then I was always very interested in physical fitness. And I did a lot with Jim Rimmer, who's a big physical fitness person for disabilities. And then realizing that that activity, that physical activity does something for the body, but it also does something for the brain. And the brain and the body really are constantly interacting that I realized that the whole issue is not practice. It's just, we just need to get these kids moving and out there and doing stuff. And it, you know, that's really the key. And, and that, that message is still very strongly out there that things have to be child initiated. They have to be effortful. They have to, the person has to want to do it. I mean, all the engagement has to be there. The principles are still there and they're, they're actually very, they're again, exercise physiology principles. They're very straightforward principles that somehow people just, I mean, some things are almost too basic. I think sometimes that people forget. And like, I started realizing people had forgotten about how to strengthen people are like now moving on to do other stuff and, you know, using all these fancy devices that I actually like and, and do, but they kind of forget the basic principles of strengthening. So I'm going back and now doing more thinking about strengthening again and publishing some strengthening reviews and, and, and talking about that again, because I feel like people are sort of, again, missing sort of the underlying things that are that are important to keep yourself um, more active through the lifespan. Yeah. 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 And, and when we think about activity, when should we be implementing activity for, for children? Yeah. I mean, that's what you tell parents, like when I work with babies, that you just want them, the kind of message I gave parents is that any, because t- kids with CP, it's hard for them to move. They don't really want to move. Mm. You know, it's, it's just not as reinforcing when it's harder. Just told them anytime they're just laying there doing nothing, you know, it's time they're not developing their muscles. Just get them upright. You know, even if you're carrying them around, have them working on their heads, you know, do anything you can that, that they like doing that makes them move. So it starts from the very beginning. Um, you know, I, I there's an article out that says that muscles and CP start changing at 15 months. And I've, I've been kind of going nuts because I've seen everybody see talk about that lately. Muscles at birth at CP are affected at birth. I mean, it just that it takes that long for them to diverge yeah. um, from other kids. Yeah. You know, muscles are waiting for input and kids with CP, their muscles don't get that input. The brain's waiting too. And everything you can do to make, to just give them more activity is, is a positive. Love Gosh, that. that's good. Yeah. I, I remember just last year I was um, in in a working group with the fabulous Dr. Norelle Moreau and there was Richard Lieber in there too and they were just talking about muscle and strengthening. And you do need to go down to that detail sometimes because even after spending some time with them, I'm like, oh, this happens early. We do need to think about sarcomeres. We mm. do need to think, think about, you know, um, the difference between muscle strength and muscle power. And I remember Noelle even right. saying, she's like, I feel like the pendulum has swung so far to participate which is where we want to be, but we've almost forgotten about yeah. strength training. So that's why she published that article um, last year. And it was just, it was good to get that in the forefront. And um, and I suppose on that and the, you know, the importance of weight bearing and, mm. and stress to the actual bones itself, they're good things. How early should we be starting things like supported stepping, particularly when we're thinking about, you, you spoke about kids who, you know, it's hard for them to get up and move. Mm. So we are thinking about across the GMS, yes. But what about the kids who we know are kind of headed towards, you know, GMS level four and five? Jeannie, this is very you. I can see you nodding. Um, when should we be starting to get them up and moving? <laughs> 
Heather Feldner has coined the term on time, capital O, capital N, hyphen, capital T. I asked, why did you choose those letters? And she said, alcohol. Um, so I'm using the phrase on time. It doesn't really <laughs> have a specific meaning in, in the wording, but it's about doing it when typical kids do it. So my grandson is five months old and he is sitting. You know, we worked immediately on tracking. We got the colorful <laughs> bands that I give my clients, um, you know, early sitting like Iona yeah. Novak and Kathy Morgan, yep. three months old. We're already, you know, her friends are looking at her Instagram and like, what are you doing? Following my mom. <laughs> um, he has a he has a plagiocephaly helmet, too. Uh -huh. We get rid of that in two more weeks. Um so, yeah, we have to start that right away. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no, you know, in the NICU, when I worked in the NICU, we already started on showing the parents during kangaroo care, how to do some tracking, some talking. Um, so we're recommending you get up in a stander at nine months because, again, Sean Williams tells me that's when she sees yeah. um, sarcopenia beginning. Um, we're getting up in supported stepping and power mobility training and switch toy use right around that same time. Yeah. There's a lot going on at nine months. Uh, some people spread it a little out, especially with medically compromised kids, but that's when typical kids mm -hmm. are doing those things. Yeah. We don't want to miss those windows of opportunity and neuroplasticity. Yeah. And when you talk about that, Ginny, and congratulations on your grandson, by the way, that's very <laughs> exciting. Um, you know, my mind goes to milestones and those things that, you know, as parents, you kind of have those check boxes in your head of what a child, you know, you think a child should be doing at certain points in time. Are, are those, you know, I'm hearing from what you're saying that around those times that we might expect things to start happening is when we should be encouraging those things for our children with CP. Is that right? Like what role do milestones have um, for these children? I can't get hung up on every single thing. Like my grandson, he's not a roller. Mm -hmm. His father's a part-time baker, so he does all the rolling. So my grandson doesn't feel like he has to do it. <laughs> and again, crawling. I think I published something 15 years ago that said, why are we so hung up on crawling? Like it, it's not a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, my daughter works for Google. She never crawled. Like maybe it's a little bit of a cause and effect that a kid's body works a different way. So yeah. they decide to get around it. Yeah. But my whole lesson from Peter Rosenbaum is I'm not going to fix it. Like yeah. I have to wear glasses. That's just, and you do too. That's just what we do. Yeah. So I don't get hung up on every single little thing. The main thing is to play and enjoy and bond mm. and learn that you have an effect on your environment and the people around you, the mm. social, the social, emotional yeah. stuff. Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, babies do love movement. So, and I think again, you know, you want to encourage parents to not be afraid to do stuff like Dale Ulrich, you know, did a lot of the stuff with Down syndrome and has done some stuff in CP. Mm. You know, he just just tells everybody to support like babies love to stay in. Just do it. Yeah. Just do it when the, you know, if the babies like it. Just keep doing it and mm. then put them on their tummy and make it fun. I mean, just, you know, these are things that we can be doing. And, you know, parents play, you know, play movements, a lot of play and interacting. And you have a child with a physical disability, the more you can reinforce what they can do the yeah. more exciting it is yeah. and you know i've been jenny's really been a pioneer for helping children in gmfcs fours and fives mm. and really um you know finding ways for them to be active which is something we've neglected and just sort of struggled with for so long in therapy and we know that the, the health risk of that group is so important so the message is you know you need to start early and yeah. i 
I'm reviewing a PhD thesis on frame running. It used to be called race runners yep. and it's all for GMS CS fours and fives. I'm just so excited about this work. It's work I wanted to do. I just, I just don't have time to do everything. Yeah. And you know, calling people GMFCS fours and fives athletes. Mm. These are like highly trained. These people like can make incredible gains through yeah. training. It's like, uh, you know, just seeing that power that people that what is these children are capable of yeah. and that we're not even giving them the chance yeah. of. Yeah. I think parents, if they saw those visions of these kids like GMFCS fours running down a track. Yeah. Incredible. It would change their perspective. Right. And I think that that's kind of the message that, yeah, I mean, it's going to take your whole life commitment if you want to do that stuff, but it's, I mean, their health, it just is, it it saves their lives because their health is better and they're out in the world with their friends. They're competing. They're people are cheering for them. All the self-esteem. I mean, it's It's brilliant. You know, it's so great. Yeah. Yeah. So these are the things I think we need to, these are the kind of seeds I think if we plant in people's heads, yeah, I think it'd be much better. Yeah, I love that. and I love the idea that we're we're thinking about starting early. You know, what of one of the things I have heard is people being a little bit worried about getting them upright because it just reinforces their extensor tone or the dystonia, and they all get stiffer because they're up. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's no, I don't think there's any evidence that doing that makes them. You can't make anybody more distant. I mean, I know that's not what's that's not what's causing those issues. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you know they do want to. Obviously, you want to pay attention to the muscles that aren't working as well because mm-hmm. you want to keep things more balanced. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think activity is more important than and, and functional activity. Yeah. Make mm-hmm. it as fun and functional. Yeah. 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 Than worrying about that. And we can know now what your GMFCS level is going to be approximately with some clarity at three to five months adjusted age. So Mm. you can make a decision there. Someone's going to be a one or a two. You're going to focus on different things. But if I know you're most likely going to be a four or five, then I don't know anything now to change your level. Right. So I don't think I'm going to. And and, and if kids that do change level, they actually get worse. Mm. So. I think we can only make them better. And that one of the shifts from the evidence is that we, we're not going to worry about fixing. We're not trying to make you normal. We're trying to integrate your reflexes. Like you are what you are and we're going to make you the best person you can be. Yeah. 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 Love that. So cool. So coming back to the evidence and, and talking about the the traffic light system that was published by Iona Novak and her incredible team of, of researchers um, back in 2019, I think, yeah, first. And then released. and then there yep. was a there's been a, you know, an update to that since then. Um, there's some common themes in there about uh, things that work, I suppose, those green light interventions, there's commonalities among those. Can we talk about those and, and what the evidence is and what the consistent evidence is yeah. across those? Yeah, We like the right. word ingredients. Okay. Ingredients, yeah. yeah. Yep. That's Let's cool. do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they all, they all take very, they all involve specific training at a fairly intense level. Um, it's all, yeah, again, the, the child initiated, they have to be, they have to be the ones doing the activity, not something being mm-hmm. done to them. Yeah. Um, they have to learn their own sensory consequences, not having somebody manipulate their body to impose different sensory things. Um, I mean, some devices like locomotor training 
has been shown to be effective. Um, it, it, which is different than the adult rehab. It's been more effective because I think people in pediatric rehab have used it in more challenging ways. Mm. Um, so I, I think obviously overground is really important. We can't, we can't forget this to the more simple things. You can't, you don't want to help people too much, but if you have that principle with that, the work has to be done by the person and anything that helps them do more work mm. is, is a helpful device, yeah. not something that does it for them. So I mean, I think that, you know, the interesting thing, you know, Roberta Shepard, who's one of my favorite people <laughs> from your, from Australia, you know, she years ago wrote, wrote about the principles of motor learning in stroke and, and then in CP and everything that changes brain plasticity, everything that's in those green bubbles, basically they're all her principles. I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah. we, we knew this stuff. This is, you know, of course the same thing that makes your body better changes your brain. This is how it works. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's again, you know, it's remarkable to me to see that we have so much knowledge that we somehow we don't use and we don't remember yeah. when yeah. it's so it's right in front of us. Yeah. 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 My biggest frustration is contrived situations. I see kids, on saran wrap, on boards that go up and down, on, and it's not a real life, full test specific, context specific. Mm. And on your one of your podcasts, I think it was Sarah. I can't read, I can't remember. Yeah. But she said, if I walk by your workstation and I can't immediately know what the goal is, then you broke it down too far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I need, it should be obvious. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Right. That's a good. That's very good. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I guess on that then, in terms of those are the ingredients that you can look at. So mm. for, you know, so any therapist that's evaluating something, those are great things to, to check through and go, you know, is this more likely to be a green light intervention, something that's really worthwhile? What about on the other side in terms of the ingredients that are the commonalities for the red light interventions that were sort of identified in that traffic light system? I mean, I think any of the passive you know, the Voita, for example, is so is, is so passive and imposed on people. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that I don't really know enough about sensory integration, but so I can't really comment on that. NDT, the traditional NDT, you know, we're all very familiar with it. You know, the, I think the issue there is that because that's such a powerful part of our profession, NDT was so, yes. so dominant mm. and it's dominant all over the world. Yes. And it means different things all over the world. Mm is that people people have changed within that culture they try to change it and they're trying to adapt it and and but i think that the issue there is that we you can't you it has a baggage to it it has it means something or means different things to different people sure. right now yeah. but it means something and it's and even when we've tried to even in the changed versions of it it still is not it's shown not to be effective it doesn't do what it, what the other things do. So it's, mm. that's where I'm saying that this is where you have to question. You have to, it's your professional duty, I think, to say, yeah, I've been doing that. And why is the evidence saying that? And, and then you, when I see that, like the number of green bubbles now, yeah. I feel like, oh my God, we have so much. And it, it, before it was like mostly upper extremity right now, it's like, yeah. we have things for everything, yeah. for yeah. every sort of major functional goal yes. that we know work better. So why are we messing with other stuff mm. Yeah, when, you know, why aren't we doing that? Yeah, Because to me, it's like, I feel like, boy, you know, when I was starting out, I would have died to have all these different things that I could be doing with my kids. And I do want to point out that in McIntyre's new article, standing is now green. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> yeah, strengthening got in there too. I'm very excited. <laughs> Took a long time because of all the because people weren't doing it right. Yeah, <laughs> they started doing it right. It works. Yeah. 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 Well, that's a good point, isn't it? It's fidelity. So if we we are calling it an intervention, you know, it's publishing those protocols and, and mm. performing it in that sort of way. And I think um, you know, for me, something I've noticed is either you know I, I love locomotor training, but I do that in context with uh, overground. You know, that's a really important component of it. Whereas that's often been put right. together with treadmill training and treadmill training means so many different things. You know, is it all facilitated? Right. What was the speed? Was the speed calculated by uh, something that related to that child? And how did we progress it? You know, there's just, it's a lack of protocol that means that you kind of put them all together and you water it down. Yeah. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. And is that another, I suppose, an ingredient of those green light interventions is that their things are set out very like they're manualized and you can um you know check your fidelity yeah. against them and you can become accredited in delivering an intervention yes. in that way yes and so it's very clear for new therapists and people who you know maybe come to learn from you or are trying to teach others it's mm. It's very directed and very guided mm. in what they're meant to be doing. What it actually means. It's kind of what you were saying before, Dan, like about, you know, having courses where you can get some accreditation going, well, I can do constraint or I can do, um, you know, strength training. You know, like yeah. it's kind of going, this, these are the protocols, this is how you can carry it out in that time. Right, yeah. right. But that's oh, not controlled great. at all. Like when I yeah. wanted to mm. learn habit and habitile, I went up to Columbia and I stalked Andy. And, you know, I hung out and we became friends. We just wrote a chapter together in Suzanne Campbell's own t old textbook. But okay. nowadays, if you want to get certified in habit, you've got to go to Belgium and hang out with Yannick for three weeks or longer yeah, to get sure. certified. So, yeah. you know, that's what I think Diane alluded to is yeah. we almost have to come up with some international ideas of how we're going to get people mm. up to speed. Yeah, yeah. Because they're curious. People want to do the right thing. They they're, they're motivated. Yeah. Nobody's trying to do harm, yeah, but no. maybe they're not thinking it about the ways that we are in terms of time and money and hope. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But I think we, we like constraint almost when like, constraint means a lot of different things now, mm. but like, mm -hmm. like Habitio as wonderful as that. I mean, obviously that this is a person who's really investigated this principle of doing intensive upper and lower limb training. Do we really have to do habitial? I mean, this is again, these are principles that does it have to be called something like we don't feel like we're doing the right thing. Sure. And like mm. we we have all the, these pediatric interventions, these early interventions are all have different names. Even the constraint ones will have, you know, apples or different ones. Yeah. Like I feel like the naming somehow we've got to stop naming stuff. Sure. Um, yeah. And just call it. Yes, we're going to do intense upper and lower limb training at the same time and these yeah. are some of the ways you can do it yeah um what's lots know, I, of crazy I, balance perturbations that i would never have done before <laughs> yeah. yeah no i think but that's great i think you know you you push you know we yeah. know we need to challenge kids more we need to push things that they're not good at i mean there's mm. obviously there's things that we need to be doing better what she's learned in her research is critical information but i i don't like the fact that now it's it, you know, like I want to take this to Uganda with me yep. and say, this is what, this is how you're going to do it. I don't want, yep. they, they can't go like that. We need to make these things totally accessible yeah. on a global basis. Like most of the kids with disabilities aren't in these, aren't in Europe and, you know, yeah. North America yep. mm. or in Australia. There are yep. other places. Yep. Yeah. I, you know, we need to make these things far more accessible and principles 
with suggestions how to implement those principles are really critical. Mm. That's such a good point. And I think that when you think of how complex sometimes we make it, because we're looking for that, I guess that, that it's the search for that that thing <laughs> to make all the difference. Yeah. And usually they cost a whole lot of money to either be trained in or to get. And um, like you said, if when we're actually applying all the ingredients of green light interventions, mm. anyone can do it. And that's those are the principles. Right. You know, there's If you can evaluate that and go, let's just play, let's be as active as we can, let's make sure the child's doing as much as they can, we're going to get we're going to get outcomes from that that are meaningful for that person and, and you can apply them. Mm. Yeah. Right. And I think we can name the ingredients of the red light things as well. You yeah. know, Diane said passive, yeah. um, facilitation, manual movement, reflex integration. Mm. Um, I would include moving surfaces because I think except for really getting on and off an escalator, there's not a lot of moving surfaces going on for my fours and fives. Mm, That's true. Uh, Not functional, not functionally relevant. Yeah. 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 No, those are always good ones. Yeah. Yeah. So how confident can we, are we, or can we be that we have robust research now? Like is, is this a, a reason contributing to knowledge translation or that, you know, knowledge to practice gap that we aren't confident in getting the word out just yet like we need that extra piece of evidence or that extra bit of information or do you feel like we are confident that we have robust research and we just need to get it out there and get as many people across it as possible I mean I think I think the knowledge translation to me is so critical I mean I think Mm. that I think that's been the missing piece I think and that's the piece that we don't get the right message to parents. We don't get, the, I mean, I actually feel that we need to bypass professionals and go right to parents, inform parents and have them, and they're, they're the best advocates. They can go to, they, if we can have them understand yeah. why people need to be practicing certain ways, they're only going to go to those people. So I feel mm-hmm. like I, you know, have a lot of confidence in parents. They do, you know, Obviously, there's a lot of emotional issues and a lot of things, and parents talk to other parents, and and they get swayed by some things. But I think the more that we can have a coherent message and have that inf- have the good information mm-hmm. out there, when pe- parents seek information, they can't get the good information. They mm-hmm. get all this other like, you know, we can cure your child yeah. stuff. Yeah. So we need to find ways in this knowledge translation to make it easily available to be the first thing, the first hit that you see. Mm-hmm. Um. And I, you know, I'm not that person. I'd like, you know, Ginny's a kind of that Ginny's great for her age, but like, I'm like just terrible at this. I need my whole <laughs> young staff, like, tell me how to do this because mm. I don't know how to do it, but I know it needs to be done. Yeah. yeah. I think the messaging needs to be clear as well. You know, when you were talking about just that we need to get those principles out there and that's what makes things more accessible, I think is a, a clear and simple message. So for families, you know, these are the these are the things you should be looking for in an intervention that your child is doing. You know, yeah. these these are the principles that your therapist should be adhering to when they're, you know, working with your child. Yeah. And that can kind be the of evaluator. Thing is, yeah, really. yeah. Yeah. I don't know yeah. what your thoughts are. And there's on gonna that. be there's always going to be more research. Like we're I'm not happy, you know, I'm not happy enough with what we have for CP. I mean, Mm -hmm. I feel like we've made a lot of incredible gains in how we think about therapy. Like the F words are just like Peter Rosenbaum. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Like he is, 
he's transformed thinking, which is the hardest thing in the world to do. And, and that is so amazing. So I think those kind of things that those messages do somehow get out there and that's just wonderful because that's, it's just the right thing. It resonates with everybody. Right. But, you know, research is, you know, it's the whole thing about research is we're trying to do better. We're trying Mm -hmm. to, you know, you know, we're doing neurofeedback, we're doing all Mm -hmm. kinds of stuff. So it's, it's not going to stop, but I think you need to embrace or the, you know, like everything else, you yes. embrace where you are yes. and fully, you know, and be ready for the next big thing that's, yeah. that has evidence. But, you know, if you're not sort of that kind of person going in the evidence path and you're just sort of stuck in something 50 years ago, you know, you won't, you won't be there when these next things happen. You won't be the person to deliver those. So I yeah. think that that's the kind of thing where I wish people were like, they, they would get themselves more on the edge of of what we know now and really embrace things that we we know work. Yeah, I think it comes back to what you were saying at the start of our conversation, Ginny, you know, being confident to embrace the the latest evidence, but also being confident to let go of what you what your, you know, ideas or expectations were before that as well, mm. you know, it's it feels like people kind of wrestle with that line. It's the Egma Longo when we spoke to her a few years ago and I've never like I always remember it. She's like it's like a dance, Dana. Evidence it's like a dance. When the music changes, we change. And as long as we just keep changing, that's it. That's all that is. But we're still dancing, but we just change our rhythm and we just follow the music. That's more elegant. I love that. <laughs> she love said that. it beautifully. Yeah. And Eggimar did her Eggimar did her postdoc with Diane. So it all comes full circle. Yeah. It does. Yeah, and Noelle too. Yeah. Noelle was with yeah, no, it's, it's and the last thing I think yeah. Diane and I wanted to point out is that mm. sometimes on the internet we're seeing these arguments about the three pillars of evidence mm. um, being therapists' comfort zone and what our clinical expertise we know to be true, mm-hmm. uh, what families' preferences are, and what the evidence states. Mm. And again, I wish I was more articulate and could tell you a better story, but they're not equal. If they're equal, the house falls down. Like clearly published evidence is a much bigger pillar. It's probably three of the pillars. Mm -hmm. And then family preference and therapist preference is maybe half of the other pillar. Mm. Yeah. And you can't expect parent that their preference, family preference is weighed by what they've heard and what they've been exposed to. And and they, they listen to therapists so much. Yeah. We did a study looking at where do you get your, where do you get your information? And, um, you know, therapists are way up there. And, and okay. so it's, it's you know, it's who you're listening to. Mm. Yeah. yeah and we did a study in Spain where we trained everybody on Hein and GMA. And then we went back and said, what are you doing? And they were like, we need more training. We're still going to do all the red based mm. stuff. Cause that's what we're mm. used to. Uh, and so then the answer the that yeah. Diane and yeah. I talk about is, you know, how much training, how much exposure does it take? And turns out it's a lot. You got to hear things in different ways from different people before you become curious that are like, wow, what is that thing? Yeah. Yeah. And the support to apply that training and what you've learned as well. Right. Absolutely. Mm. There's so many parts to that, but that has been an absolutely inspiring conversation. And I guess you've all kind of just said where to in a little way, but we're always really curious about the where to for from here. Um, Have you guys got anything to say about where do you think the industry is headed or where you're headed from a research perspective that we can wait for and and, and look (laughs) forward to? Yeah. So, you know, I I think this has been a struggle, like when you've watched this for many years, now that I've been doing research for over 30 years, that that the uptake of evidence just is not, it's just really hard. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to figure out how to solve that. You know, 
what has changed practice is when we legislate things and when like and when funding dries up and things like that we like we we a lot of these things parents pay for themselves but that is only that's going to limit the access to things right mm. I, I think that our profession needs to be tougher on people i think that i mean i think insurance companies need to be tougher on people i think that i think that's going to change behavior because at the end of the day i it's it's really about that family in front of us and they they deserve it. They don't yep. deserve people telling them that they should be doing this thing that doesn't work. Yep. I mean, so I, I really feel I, I I wish it didn't have to be that way mm. and we could leave it to people's own good wills mm-hmm. and they're but I and I used to think these young people, they're gonna they're gonna be coming through school and it's gonna change. And I think the young people sort of they do infuse the profession. And it's getting better, but it's it's not quick enough. And I think if we just told people, well, it's great you want to do that, but you don't get to do it anymore. I mean, yeah. That would ch- could change overnight. And yeah. I I actually feel yeah. for families, I, I know I for families, I wish that was done because I feel like the medical profession doesn't get away with what we get away with. Yeah. And I yeah. and I and it's embarrassing to me because I love my profession and I want it to be incredible and I want every family to have a great experience. So. Um, yeah, so I think that's, unfortunately, that's probably the answer. No, that's, that's Jenny, do you have any other easier yeah. ways to do it? Besides <laughs> care pathways. Quality. So Elizabeth Broadby Busquet in yeah. Norway are coming up with care pathways that aren't based on systematic reviews. They're mm. accepting the lower level evidence. And with Eggie Marlongo, one of my groups, we're concentrating on the low and metal income uh, resource areas, trying to come up with train the trainer to try to help folks that don't have Mm. access even to physical therapists, Mm. especially Mm. for the fours and the fives. So over the last two years, we've published seven articles on just what to do with the fours and fives. But the final thing is, I think um, Healthy Strides needs to have a certification program. People listen to your podcast series. They have to read all the articles, answer some questions, and then they get a certificate. They are, you know, Healthy Strides certified as informed. I'm loving like all the language and the feeding and the all stuff you're doing. Stuff I don't usually learn about. And I'm like, hey, I want a certification because now I know this. That has come up a few times actually in the, in the last few weeks. So that's why I'm laughing. I'm like, oh. Yeah. But um, no, thank Thank you. Thank you so much for that vote of confidence, <laughs> yeah. Ginny. I love it. <laughs> and and thank you both for yeah, your time today and for sharing so freely your your expertise yeah. and, and your thoughts yeah. and, and feelings and everything that we've covered today. We we so appreciate your time and we so appreciate your contributions to this field. Oh, so good. Thank you. It was nice to meet both of you. I hope to see you in person someday. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Sure. You're welcome anytime. Now yep. I'm, I'm gonna be a new I'm gonna be a new listener. I didn't even know about this, so I'm oh, really yay. converted. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so so great. We're I'm gonna... hoping to join you at the uh AUCS CPDM next year. So yes. Oh, I'm that's hatching so exciting. a plan. Oh good, very good. Well, <laughs> we will be there. So <laughs> we'll see you there for sure. Yeah. Um look to all of our listeners, remember you can get a hold of our run sheet notes and the links to the papers that we spoke about today on researchworks.net and also there's a CPD form there that you can fill out as well if you want to keep this part of a record of your PD requirements. But for now, not that I want to say goodbye, no. but I uh, we need to because it's late at night for them. <laughs> yes, we need to let them get to bed. <laughs> That's right. Uh, thank you to yes, everyone. Definitely. And we'll talk to you all again next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.